like to greet you each in the name of Jesus this evening. <clears throat> it is a real <clears throat> joy and privilege to be here with you, and we've been looking forward to this for quite some time now. I guess uh, I was glad it got uh, delayed because last year I would not have been able to come, and <clears throat> it's been, uh, we've been looking forward to this. I see a number of familiar faces mostly new faces. And some of those uh, connections go back pretty far, don't they, Merle? <laughs> Good to see you. And the rest of you as well. God bless each of you this evening. <clears throat> <clears throat> I didn't bring the virus along, but I am recovering from laryngitis, and so I hope that uh, we'll be able to get along here. <clears throat> Thank you for those thoughts as well, Brother Leon. And I trust my prayer, too, is that in our fellowship, in our communion here, that we will be drawn to God. And in drawing near to God, that we can be drawn to each other as well. As we get closer to God, what does that do? It brings us closer together as well, doesn't it? You will find a song sheet on your, on your chairs. Thank you for making copies of this song. I'm not sure how appropriate this song is going to be throughout the week or how closely connected the theme will be. I would like to use it as a theme song for this week and at least use it as a backdrop of reminding us who we are in this world and uh, what we're here for as far as the messages uh, connecting real close to the theme of the song, it may not always be that way. This song, I need to make a bit of an introduction here. Um, I was inspired to use this song to encourage us to just rethink and, or think about our purpose here on this earth. Why we're here. And the Bible tells us that we're supposed to have the, we should have the attitude of a stranger and pilgrim. And the Bible also tells us that that was the testimony of Abraham in the Old Testament. Even though he was one of the richest men on earth, he lived as a stranger and as a pilgrim. He lived as a foreigner in his own land. And I think God is calling us that, to do that today. Obviously, uh, the teachings in the New Testament would give us that um, directive that we need to be careful not to become, um, put our roots down very deep here. We are strangers and pilgrims. This song, one night my father-in-law Sanford had a dream about a song. It came to his mind. He, I don't know if he's ever written or done a song before in his life. He's will be nine in June if the Lord gives him life until then. This was maybe a year or two ago, and the next morning he called my wife Ruth, and he wanted her to write this song out. Well, it wasn't very complete anymore, and I don't think it was quite as, uh, as, as flowery as it had been in his dream. It was pretty sketchy, but she grasped the meaning that he still was carrying uh, about this song, and uh, 
tried to, to write something up and put some music to it. And so while, the, while she wrote the song, it was born out of a, of a dream that, that Brother Sanford had. The, uh, the prelude, you'll notice there's a prelude, and then also uh, at the end, the same thing. This was his idea, and so she tried, she wanted to incorporate that part of it for sure. She got that in, and he's, uh, he's been blessed with it. Um, kind of feels like a, an extension of, of his goal and vision, I think. By the way, Sanford preached a sermon last Sunday evening. Um, he had a desire to preach one more time. And so he did, a wonderful message. And I don't know how many people were there. It was a public meeting where many, many people were. So we were blessed with his message as he sat on a chair and uh, did the whole thing by memory because he can't hardly see anymore. The Hebrew writer, when he speaks of the heroes of faith, he said, they all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham, when he was called to go out in a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. It was his land that he had inherited. He sojourned in this, in this land of promise as in a strange country. Dwelling in tabernacles, or not in, in tents, not in huge mansions, with Jacob and Isaac, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And I believe if we are truly looking for a city whose, whose builder and maker is God, it will help us to detach ourselves a little bit more and a little bit better from this world and maintain a more pilgrim and stranger attitude. I believe Abraham's ability to live as a stranger in his own land had to do with his recognition that this was temporary and that it was very inferior. His goal his life was for something way beyond, and he never allowed the earth to pull him too close to her bosom. Someone said, longing to live the now for the sake of eternity. So I'd like to sing this song. It's not very difficult, but uh, I'd like to be singing this and directing our thoughts to the eternal. Um, the song leader, somebody give me a G there so we get started right. You don't have it? Um, just a little bit. Maybe I'll just uh, get an electronic one here because I'm a little bit scared to, to try it without um, knowing for sure where I am. I thought I would. Somebody else have a pitch pipe? Nobody? Then 
nice thing about having too many apps. Well, we'll just try it. Did I hear? No, so thank you. So the bass will begin with the the prelude there, and then the rest you the rest of you come in. No, so we're only strangers and pilgrims on our way home in this dark foreign land filled with sin, fear, and pain. We will travel toward home, sowing seeds of good grain, seeds of kindness and grace, seeds of mercy and truth, gladly sharing the news of the sinner's new birth. We're only strangers and pilgrims on our way home. We're only strangers and pilgrims on our way home. We will call to the lost, we will welcome them in. We will bid them to turn from their blindness and sin. We will stand on the rock, not on frail shifting sand. And on Jesus the King, build a house that... <coughs> I'm sorry. I just now noticed that we're supposed to sing this after the last verse. So we'll just go back up to the beginning now and sing the... Uh, at the end, we'll sing at the end of the last verse. That's the end of the third verse. The beginning... We're only strangers and pilgrims on our way home. The harvest has come, time to gather the grain. Those who have been redeemed, washed and free from all stain. Now we're waiting to go where we'll never more roam. No more strangers and pilgrims, for we will be home. We're only strangers and pilgrims on our way home. Good, thank you. Sorry about that um, goof there. <clears throat> Learning to live the now in light of eternity. <clears throat> for a message tonight, I'd like for our minds to be drawn to our God. And I trust as we dwell on this subject that has been on my heart for some time, that we can feel 
our hearts bending and bowing to worship God. The title for the message this evening is For My Name's Sake. In the Old Testament, we find this term over and over again. And some time ago, I became intrigued by seeing this and seeing it in, in the context that I have found it in. It was interesting to me so much so that I began to, to do a study on that to try to gain a better understanding of what, why it is used so often, how it is used, what it means. In the New Testament, then, Jesus taught us to pray, or taught the disciples to pray in his prayer, Hallowed be thy name. Is there any connection here between, in the Old Testament, when, when God did so many things, so many of the things that he performed, he said he did them for my name's sake, is there any connection then to the New Testament where Jesus taught us to pray, Hallowed be thy name? <clears throat> I'd like to begin <clears throat> by looking at a number of scriptures that, that uh, use this term and see how it is used. Let's begin by looking at Psalm 25. In verse 11, David is, is beseeching, is seeking after God after he had sinned and seeking forgiveness, seeking restoration. And it's interesting to me, his way of imploring to God forgiveness for his sin. In verse 11, he says, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. Why did David address God in this way? Pardon me for thy name's sake. Why didn't he say, because you love me so much, thank you, God, for your great love. And because you love me so much, please forgive me for my great sin. But David did not appeal for God's forgiveness because of God's great love. And God does have a great love. We all know that. John 3.16 says that that's why God sent his son. But David appealed to God for forgiveness on the basis of God's great respect and his love for his own name. For my name's sake, he said. Or for thy name's sake, please forgive me. What is the significance of that? What did he mean by that? And we find this over and over again in the Old Testament. And it seems that God performed these mighty miracles and, and uh, he forgave his people over and over again for his name's sake. What does that indicate? What does it mean? We could go to Psalm 106 as well. Let's just turn to that just briefly. Psalm 106. In 
In verse 1 he begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And he goes on to say how he's, God forgives. God is merciful. But then in verse 4 he says, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong, the wrong psalm. Yes, Psalm 106 begins with, Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? But then in verse 4 he says, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. Oh, visit me with thy salvation. Remember me with favor. Remember me with your salvation, Lord. He's pleading to God for his salvation. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says, But you know, our fathers understood not what you were trying to do. They sinned. They rebelled. And they did wickedly. They didn't understand the miracles that you performed the wondrous works, the mercies that you gave us, and the salvation that you gave to us, they didn't understand it. Then in verse 8, he says, Nevertheless, he saved them. And why did he save them? This rebellious people, this obstinate, he saved them for his name's sake. that he might make his mighty power to be known. Have you ever wondered about this? Let's just go to Joshua chapter 2. There's something very interesting. I just recently was made aware of this. When we think of God making known his powers, of making his name known among the nations. Notice in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, Rahab talking to the men, the spies that had come into her house, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. We heard about this, Lord. We know what your God does. How did they know? How did she know about this? God's name had been proclaimed. His fame had gone abroad. Even the pagan nations knew about God. So what does for my name's sake mean? First of all, we need to understand that the name of God, his name can never be separated from his person. The name of God can never be separated from who he is, 
from his attributes, from his perfection, from himself. <coughs> I had to think of when God gave the commandments to the children of Israel through Moses. Let's just go to Exodus chapter 20. Did you ever think about it that the first part of the, the first two commandments take the most space? I don't know how much of uh, the, how, how big a percentage of the rock that God used to write these commandments, the first two. God spake all these things, said, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. He begins this by saying, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't you may not, you dare not, bow down to any other God. I won't take that. And then he spend time in, in, in just explaining, I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. And then the second commandment follows, Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God in vain, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. After declaring his, his jealousy as being the true and only God, he says, and don't take my name in vain either. Don't bow down to any other God and be careful with my name. Hallowed be my name, God told them. And there were some very serious consequences for not revering and respecting the name of God. So in a nutshell, was this not, if you analyze Israel's sin or sins, could we not almost say that probably Israel's primary sin was not respecting the first two commandments. And I think if we be if we be honest with ourselves, we see the same thing today. Many of the sins, if we want to term it that way, are a result of not not respecting the name of God and what that means. Disrespecting the sovereignty of God, His right to rule, to order our lives, letting someone else rule our life. Disrespecting His sovereignty, disrespecting His authority, disrespecting His ownership, disrespecting His name must come at the top of the list of sins.
by refusing to let God do that, by taking our own way, are we not disrespecting his holy name? In a sense, maybe taking his name in vain. And we stir up the mighty wrath of God when we do not honor his name. Or when we trample on his name. And we can do that in many different ways. We can do that by our testimony that does not line up with his character. We're misrepresenting God when we do that. If we're, if we're known as Christians, when we deliberately disobey, we're dis disrespecting his holy name and his right to our life. You know, God's sovereignty and God's greatness and God's holiness is all wrapped up in his name. And I think that's why it is so, so important. And we see it over and over again. Honoring God's name is honoring God. And maybe just to get that a little bit more into perspective, if we could just look at Ephesians chapter 1 and discover what is our primary purpose for being here on this earth. Why did God put us here? He needed some company. He was lonely and needed somebody to talk to. Obviously not. He delighted in putting us here. He delighted in creating the creation. He delighted in creating man and woman. But it was not because of a need that he had. <coughs> Excuse me. But it was because it was divine design that he had. And he had a purpose for creating us that is really outside of us. And it's very important that we learn what that purpose is and that we live that purpose. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have this phrase three times. We find it in chapter, in verse 6. Um, Paul just kind of begins to, to bubble over here and uh, speaking to the Ephesian church, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, without blame, before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that God really takes pleasure in his creation, us. It's beautiful. But why did he create us? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted. He has made us to be creation, or a part of creation, created beings that draw attention to God, that turn attention to God. We're made for his glory. And what we do 
And what he has done for us is so that he receives glory. And we could continue there uh, in verse 6 through, through 11 there, talking about all that God has done for us. Redemption. Um, he's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He's known, he's, uh, he made known the mystery of his will. Um, he, he has done so much for us given us an inheritance. And we can notice some, a few more things there. And then in verse 12 he says, that we should be to the praise of His glory. All of this, so that we be to the praise of His glory. It's for His glory that He has done all of this. Taking us into, that, into the picture there and doing so much for us. But it isn't all about us. It's about Him. And then in verse 14 again, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Our primary purpose for being created and being here on the earth is for the glory of God. The glory of God is the supreme end of all He does. All he has done. That God would share his grace, grace with us. Even consider us after mankind turned against him. We who are so worthy. Unworthy, I'm sorry. So unworthy. He adopts into the family. Because of his love and grace. But all for the praise of his glory. To bring honor to his name. For his name's sake, you and I today can experience peace, can experience joy and reconciliation to God for his name's sake. Because he honors his own name. Our redemption is a huge display of God's glory. What God has done in our life is a tremendous display of the glory of God. God made us with the purpose of us bringing glory to his name. Now, I hope that nobody feels now that somehow your value has just dropped. Because it hasn't. Just the fact that God took us into consideration and did all that for us and included us into that marvelous scheme of glorifying Him. We're part of it. And God chose us. <clears throat> God chose us <clears throat> to be a part of that. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. There was a verse in Psalm 69 that drew my attention as well. I'd just like to, to note. This was, again, David speaking in Psalm 69, verse 30 and 31. I will praise, <clears throat> I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. 
This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hoofs. And this was in the era of sacrifices and offerings that represented their worship to God. And here David says, I will praise you. I will magnify you. I will lift you up. And in the end, God is even more pleased with that than all those sacrifices. And how can we magnify? How can we make God? You know, when we talk about magnifying, we look at a magnifying glass and it actually makes it bigger than it is, right? Or a, a binoculars or a, or a telescope. It actually makes it look bigger than it actually is. Is that what we're supposed to do with God? We can't make him bigger than he is. But we can, we can display or we can put on, on display his greatness. And that is magnifying him. If we declare his greatness so that others will also see his greatness, others will know that is magnifying him. If we recognize this truth, through our own recognition of that wonderful greatness of God, we magnify, we, we exalt him, we lift his name, we glorify, we honor his name. His name is worthy to be honored. And if we live lives that reflect his holiness, that reflect obedience to him and submission to him, ultimately, God's name is honored. God's name is hallowed. And when God once asked his name to be hallowed among us, it puts a tremendous responsibility on us. We are responsible. We have a great responsibility to portray, to represent God the way he is. I wonder how well we do on that. I wonder how well I do. So what we're saying really is, is it's all about God. It really isn't about us, but it's about God. I think it's important that we get that concept. What God is and what he does is all about that love for his own name, for his own name's sake. After... <clears throat> after the deliverance of the, of the children of Israel from Egypt, there was tremendous rejoicing, tremendous uh, honoring of God. It didn't last very long, but I like the words in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And I was curious how the Septuagint originally rendered this. And it says, he was, he's glorified in holiness, and he's marvelous in glories. Kind of lofty words, but they represent our God. And words can never 
do justice to who our God really is. At least this is an attempt. <clears throat> there have been several passages in the Old Testament that have intrigued me. Just recently I was looking at Ezekiel chapter 20 and just again impressed with the fact that what God did and what God does is for his own name's sake. His own agenda for, he has, he has a purpose and, he, and, he, and what he does is, it's all about God. He says a number of times there that, I may, that they may know that I am Jehovah. He did this or that so that they would know he is God, the only God, God Jehovah. And then it says also a number of times, I've worked with you for my name's sake. His taking us into consideration is because of who he is. And for his name's sake. But I would like to just go to Isaiah chapter 48. And notice a little bit more in detail there. <clears throat> what he has to say. We're not going to read all of this. But in the first two verses it says, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Israel was calling themselves God's children, but they were obstinate, disobedient to God. They were misrepresenting God. Calling themselves children of God and doing their own thing. And he had warned them, going on down, he had warned them that they dare not do that kind of thing. Attributing to God, or to, to idols, what God had done. But they started, they did it anyway. Disregarding God's warning. Verse 8, they didn't hear me, they didn't obey and verse 9, God could have destroyed them. That was their due. That's what they should have received. But why did he not? Notice in verse 9, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. And for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. For my name's sake. He had every right to do it. He had every... And, and how many times did this happen with Israel? But he did not destroy them when they deserved to be destroyed how many times over? For his name's sake. What that would... He, he, he had mercy on them so that his name, because of his name, not because they deserved it. In verse 11, For my own sake 
even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. God is a jealous God. God does not share his glory with other, with another God, with anyone else. And then in verse 12 to 22, God calls to Israel. He declares his sovereignty, his purpose, who he is. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. Verse 18, he says, if only you would have listened. How much grief and pain you would have saved yourself. But God wanted his name to be... wanted his name to be lifted up. He wanted his name to be honored. He wanted it to be proclaimed among the nations. And in the end, it was. Rahab is a testimony to that. Well, how can we bring this home? What does this mean in my life practically? For one thing, I think it is inevitable we have to accept that our concept of God really does affect our way of living. It affects our responses in life, how we look at God, how we feel about God, what we believe about God affects how we live and how we respond. How highly we respect and honor God's name will be reflected in our lives. It will be seen. It will be noticed what place God's name has in our life. What happens when a Christian, when I or a Christian is unfaithful? When we sin? What happens when a Christian is discovered to be in gross sin? In a sin that destroys families in the community? in a sin that becomes known widely. It causes an awful uproar. And it's devastating. Devastating to the church family, devastating to those involved. And it creates a, a black picture, a black image in the community for the church group that is involved. We seek to deal with that then, with the perpetrator, for example. And we work, we try to work in a way that he will repent and be reconciled, right? So our attention is focused on the perpetrator. What do we do with him? And we look for ways to bring healing to those who have been hurt. We concentrate on the people that are involved in this awful scandal. It's right to do that, isn't it? We all agree, I suppose. But I am wondering if in a, in a scenario like that we tend to overlook an important aspect. 
What happens to the name of God when that kind of thing takes place? The world sees and they say, oh, that's what Christianity is all about. That's the way Christians live. If that's the way Christians live, I don't want anything to do with that. God's name is defiled. God's name is blasphemed. God's name is trampled down and, and stepped on and, and defiled. You know, as Christians, we're called upon to re represent the name of God, represent God's character. We are his representation here on earth. And our life is going to show how devoted we are in protecting the name of God. What is our response then to something like I just described? What should it be? First response is indignation, right? It's vengeance. How can we... How can we take care of this awful thing? What can we do to, to turn this thing around? There's often a lot of vocalization, a lot of talk. And a lot of that talk is not redemptive. A lot of the talk reflects indignation and vengeance rather than redemption and respect. But I wonder how often our greater pain is how the name of Jesus has been trampled upon. the great loss that the name of Jesus has sustained. And I wonder how can we best become involved, actively involved, in restoring the name of God. And there's one thing that gives me a lot of courage. I'm not sure sometimes how to do that. We can pray that God would restore his name. But one of the things that does give me a lot of courage is that I know, I am convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that God does want to restore his name. That is his... Yes, he's concerned about all the people involved and the people that were, were hurt, the people that were violated. He's terribly concerned about all of that. His heart goes out. He has a heart of compassion. He is a healer of broken hearts. There's no doubt about that. But I know too, I am convinced that God wants his name to be restored. And I don't know, I believe, I, I believe that when God's people come together with a goal <clears throat> of honoring God and restoring his name and praying toward that end and doing all that it is possible to restore the name of God along with all the other things that 
need to be taken care of in a situation like that. I believe God will honor his name. I don't know if you have any, if you can point to any kind of situation like that. But that's something that has been just really a burden on my heart. We can pray that God would hallow his name. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. In this horrible situation, in this horrible thing that happened. Hallowed be thy name. May your name be restored to its holy and high position. May your holiness, your holy name, again be restored. And you know, our lives have a lot to do with that. The way we live has a lot to do with how God can restore his name. We need to acknowledge, we need to declare God to be a holy God. We need to glorify him in his perfection. Our lives need to reflect that. Our lives need to aspire reverence and respect for his authority and his power. Worshiping him, bowing down in awe and reverence. Our lives need to demonstrate a submission to that authority. Humble obedience to the master. This brings honor to him. Our lives can bring honor to him. And we can be a part of the restoration committee. The restoration, the, the first responders that restore. We can be a part of that as we live a holy life. And reflect God's holiness in our life. Our lives show our respect or lack of respect. Our lives show reverence or lack of reverence. And our lives show a love for his name or a lack of love for his name. Our lives really do show that. We have a pretty big task. But we also have an enemy who's working overtime. We're in a spiritual battle. <clears throat> the enemy is trying to get God's people to fall. <clears throat> he tries to use cases like that, like I just described, to destroy the church, to destroy God's name. And you know what? God can turn that thing around. God can make something beautiful if we, allow, if we allow him to and if we, become, if we can become a part of that restoration committee. <clears throat> this is so crucial. Tonight, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure how to bring this to, to an end. I find it hard to bring it to a conclusion. 
But I'd like to ask us this question. Does my life reflect the holiness, the perfection, and the glory of God? What do people see in my life? Do they see Jesus? Is Jesus' name glorified because of me? Or do they see a lot of carnality, responses that are not godly? And we dishonor the name of God. Remember, we were made, God made us, to reflect that beauty of holiness that God is. That's why we're here. So that his name can be magnified and sanctified here on this earth. He created us for the praise of his glory. God said, for I am the Lord thy God. There is no other God. Dare not bow down to any other God. You dare not take my name in vain. So tonight I would just like to encourage us to let God show us. If we have been dishonoring him in some way or other, because it is important that our lives reflect our great um, esteem for the name of, of God. Our testimony needs to, needs to reflect how much we love God, how much we depend on Him, how much we we want to serve him and, and live for him. I was wishing we would have a song, uh, I didn't look for one, <clears throat> that would kind of wrap this all together. Does someone just have a, a, a chorus or a song that would just draw our hearts in worship to him? Who is like unto thee, God? There is none. You are holy. You are great. You are wonderful. You are marvelous. And we thank you for that, God. And thank you, O, o Father, for taking us into account, for loving us, and letting us be a part of your program, of your kingdom. even though none of us comes near to deserving it. But thank you, Lord, that you are so jealous of your name and you're so concerned about your, the, uh, your, your name here on earth that you are willing to take us and transform us and make us into your image. And we pray, O oh God, you know how far we are yet from that stature of holiness that we need 
And we just pray, God, that you will continue to work in our lives. Make us more like you. We want to be molded and shaped and become more and more like you so that our lives would reflect that holiness that is you. Help us, O oh God, with a new vision of who you are and with a new desire of becoming what you want us to be. Lord, be with each one tonight. You know each need. You know each heart. Oh God, I pray that you would minister to each one in a very special way. Go with us tonight. In the name of Jesus we pray, and may your name be hallowed. Amen.